This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Wildcatter Nation? Thanks for joining us for another episode. This week, we were joined by Tom Slocum with the Texas Well-Protected Energy Foundation. He came on the show to talk about how orphan wells are actually a much bigger problem than people think, and they can pose some huge risks to the environment and even cost taxpayers a lot of money if they're not addressed in time. Before we get into the episode, let's hop right into the TPEH Energy Insight of the Week. All right, guys. So as of today, today is November 8th, 2020. It appears that Joe Biden has won the U.S. presidential election. Uh, so one of the first things that he's been talking about, obviously, there's been a lot of talk about him banning fracking on federal lands, but also rejoining the Paris Accord uh, that you know Trump has famously removed us from, studying that it was going to hurt a lot of energy jobs. Um, but the Paris Accord, if you don't know, is saying that there's like 60 different countries that they all want to be net carbon zero by 2050. 2050 is like this magical date. So we want to talk a little bit about what does this mean for oil and gas? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people are giving Biden too much credit for being able to kill oil and gas and not enough credit to oil and gas killing itself. <laughs> you know, oil and gas hasn't, you know, been doing well on its own for the last couple of years and fracking's already come down. To, I mean, I don't know what we're running on frack spreads this week, but seen a dramatic decrease in frack spreads over the last year. So I don't think Biden needs to do much to end fracking, but you know, you talk about the Paris Accord and all these companies and countries that are trying to reach net zero. And, you know, you have sizable oil and gas companies that are taking part of this initiative, you know, whether it's Shell, BP, E&I, Equinor. And I think BP is kind of the one that sticks out the most and it's got a lot of flack online. Um, you know, a lot of people are saying they don't know whether it's virtue signaling, um, trying to get shareholders to um, actually buy more of BP stock or if BP is truly trying to become a clean energy company. And I think it's really interesting for oil and gas companies because you almost you have this internal conflict where you're an internal identity crisis, really, where BP doesn't know if they're an oil and gas company or are they a clean tech company. And so I think it's going to be interesting, you know, like you said, 2050 is kind of this this target that everyone has set. And that's only 30 years away. That's not that far away for every single company and these 60 plus countries to be net zero on carbon emissions. So, you know, I, I love lofty goals. I like setting high targets, but it'll be really interesting to see how close we come to that. Yeah, something that we have to pay attention to with this whole energy transition, uh, whether it's all uh, smoke or whether it's actually real, but uh, regardless, it's something that we have to pay attention to. So let us know if you want to get on TPH's Energy Tech newsletter, and you can go check out their D4 conference uh, here soon. You can go check it out on the events portion of the Digital Walkheaders website. You can also check out a digital event that we're going to be having soon. It's going to be huge. Uh, so go check that out, and let's roll right into the episode. What's up, Walkheaders? Welcome back to another episode of the Will & Gas Startups podcast. How's it going today, Colin? How do you feel, man? Good, man. I'm, I'm dragging. It's a Friday. You were just it's bitching a, two seconds ago, so. <laughs> I know. I was like, man, we need some nap pods here in the studio. Awesome. I need somewhere good to take a pre-podcast nap. That next way next office, nap pods for sure. Maybe yep. just a bed. Maybe just need a couch or something. <laughs> yeah, know. absolutely. I miss the couch in the old studio. So anyways, got a good guest today. We've got our buddy Tom over at the Texas Well Protected Energy Foundation. How you doing, Tom? 
hey, I'm doing great. It's a okay. pleasure to be with you guys and talk about this new organization that we're going to bring into the limelight here, full blast. We're planning on taking off like a rocket. Yeah. We've got some great guys involved with us. We, uh, we rolled into a situation where we found there was a need, and that need is really simple. The need is to plug orphaned wells that are causing us problems and and that really don't do a, a good service for our industry to just sit out there and, and rot away. Yeah. Um, you know, our government, they, they do a good job of addressing this as, as much as they can with as much money that's given to them. And uh, so it's by no means a, a real hit on the Railroad Commission to, to do what we're doing here. Um, but nonetheless, it does kind of point out an issue that maybe our government on the uh, congressional level there in, in Austin hasn't perhaps dealt with in the, in the best possible way. Um, just going back and looking at the legislation when they wrote the legislation in the 80s, they uh, they said that any well that qualifies would have to be an oil and gas well. well. That sounds great, but a lot of these wells were actually converted over into water wells mm -hmm. back in the 30s and the 40s. And because of their legal status, the attorney, the railroad commissioner will tell you, you know, we cannot write a, a law to allow the funding for this because that's just not the way the law was passed. It did not say we could use the money for water wells. So it's more or less a failure of our legislature to properly mm -hmm. address this with proper legislation at the state level that's left us in a bind where we've got thousands of these wells. And so um, these wells are never really taken into account when you look at the master well list at the Railroad Commission on how many outstanding orphaned wells we have um, because they're never tracked, because they're simply put into a different category forever. Mm -hmm. And uh, people may say, well, that's no big deal. Well, it's no big deal as long as you have mechanical integrity, as you know. As long as your well's got cement and casing and a wellhead and a valve, and well, then you're great. Yeah, there is, is no big deal. However, with <laughs> a lot of these wells, the valve froze open and then the wellhead fell off and the production casing disappeared. Yeah, next mechanical thing, you know, integrity doesn't yeah, last forever, it, it's right? Just, yeah, it doesn't. It's just a long story short. And so when they wrote the law in the 80s, most of these wells were 50 or 60 years old. But this isn't the 80s, you know. I'm, I'm almost 40 years old. I was born in 83. Yeah. It's <laughs> kind of freaking scary, but... You know, yeah, now, so let's, you know, it, well, it's kind of bullshit in the first place that the government should be having to take the responsibility of plugging wells, right? I mean, when you really look at it, when you have an operator and you're evaluating an asset, plug, plugging and abandoning wells should be calculated into the model and there should be sufficient resources to take that over. You know, instead, these EMPs, these operators, they abandon the asset and then it's left as a burden on the taxpayer to plug and abandon them. You know, you say that, you know, there's not shots being taken at the railroad commission, but in my opinion, it's like we shouldn't even have, there shouldn't even be a function of the government where they're having to plug these wells, which I know now that you, you have the abandoned wells, you have the orphan wells, someone needs to do something about it. So it should be the government, but it's kind of bullshit that, you know, oil and gas companies, you know, they just leave them abandoned and, and don't take care of it themselves. Yeah. So I've, I've been working with end of life properties since I got out of college. And so, uh, when I was in college, I worked in a cement lab, CSI here in Houston for Dr. Sabins. He's bad. Awesome dude. Yeah. PhD chemistry built Halliburton cement lab. And so he started one and sold it to Superior within one year. And I worked for him, learned how to 
to do oil field cementing offshore, high pressure, high temperature. You got to mix up your slurry, right? You have all these additives you can put in it. It was a great education and background for what ended up being a career in plug and abandonment. I started that in 2006 when I got out of A&M over at Apache Corporation. On their team there, we plugged thousands of wells. And so the knowledge, the people that I worked with in my group, uh, um, I don't want to, uh, you know, use a dirty word, but it, I have a mentor in there in that group. Some people are like, <laughs> I don't know mentors, but this guy really is awesome. His name is Gary Tomlinson, and he is widely known in oil and gas here. And he is probably the world's leading plug and abandonment expert based off the number of wells he's plugged and the amount of money he has spent. He has literally spent billions of Apache Corporation's dollars. So. Uh, I, I spent six years there plugging wells before I moved on to do work with operators. And so my background has been in oil and gas submitting. And Apache, uh, they weren't really out there drilling up the shelf. They were plugging out the shelf. That was interlife properties on a massive scale. And so we went from doing that type of work to on land doing end, end of life properties in a similar situation with on with an Australian company, and then later on in the Permian with some end-of-life properties, installing water floods and doing secondary recovery. So I can tell you about bankrupt companies, and I can tell you about operators, and as y'all know, y'all have been operators. You have a bond that you get, right? Yeah. And so if you go bankrupt, which, knock on wood, I haven't been part of a bankrupt oil company yet, but it happens a lot, and people don't realize it, but it happens. And, And when that happens... Nine times out of 10, those properties are going to move on to someone else. Yeah. And so that's even like, you, you know, you bring up the bond issue and it's like, okay, a $25,000 bond, you know, that doesn't do can sh- be. Yeah for, yeah. for a certain amount of wells. So, you know, and if you want more than a hundred wells, your bond's going to be much more. So they do have, but a what's, well, the, what, what's the cost of a PA job? Well, it, de- it depends on what kind of well you're talking about. I've plugged wells for less than $15,000. Yeah. And then I looked at a well in Pecos County the other day that will cost more than $30 million. $30 it's million a, dollars And to it's plug a land a well. well, and it's only 2,000 feet deep. Okay, so I want di- <laughs> to dive in. Wait, I want to dive into a couple of things here yeah. first. So for people that aren't familiar with P&A operations, let's talk about what it takes to plug a well. Right. So about you know, why we're plugging in a banding on for like, what right. are the, like, what yeah, are yeah, the, yeah. Let's so talk why, about why, really why, why are we doing this? So why are you spending this money? The well board it? turns into a PNA situation because it has a mechanical failure. That is just about the only way wells get plugged unless they have no more production for many years and an engineer cannot write a letter to the state saying, hey, this thing has potential. If you can get an engineer to, to uh, do the do the numbers and certify it and say it's got potential, and as long as the well board doesn't have a mechanical integrity problem, you can keep it for in quite a while. So a well only ends up in a situation where you have to plug it if the railroad commission finds out it doesn't have mechanical integrity because it fails the test and it's been so many years old, 25 years uh, you know, if it's been active for in an active well for such, such a long period of time, certain period of time, it has to be plugged. Those regulations do exist and oil companies are made to plug wells. If you have uh, idle iron list with a railroad commission, they make you plug a certain percentage of those wells every year and they hold your feet to the fire. If you don't do it, they pull your P4. 
mm-hmm. which is your license to sell oil. And so going back to the issue of me- mechanical integrity real yeah. quick, you know, what you mean by that is that now you have um, a hole in your casing right. or a bad cement job right. and the uh, the well bore is no longer contained, right? So right. That's- yeah. And the main concern there is protecting the fresh water with the surface casing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's the whole reason we uh, created the surface casing rule in Texas and uh, it protect to specifically protect that freshwater zone, which is um, can be uh, exposed in a, in a situation where you have mechanical integrity issues. Yeah. And, and then, so there's and, a and potential diving, for diving into that, you know, when you hear all, all everyone talk about, you know, anti-fracking and like, Oh, what's happening to our groundwater? What chemicals are we putting in? It's why we do these things, right? It's why we have surface casing. It's why we have cement behind that surface casing so that there's no contact between the water tables and anything that's going on down hole. So once you lose that integrity, that's when you start to run into issues with that's the water exactly table. That's exactly right. What and kind of contamination are we talking about? Well, it depends. Well, the situation, every well is different. And um, a lot of the green lobby and the people that you've seen that write, write studies on this, there's a gentleman named Daniel Rimey with the University of Michigan, He's got a partner from Columbia, I believe. They have a think tank in D.C. And uh, they're more concerned with gas emissions, of course, you know, methane and what's coming out of these abandoned wells gas-wise. And I'm sure there's validity to that argument in some cases. However, really, the major concern actually really isn't gas so much as it actually is freshwater contamination. Mm-hmm. People in oil and gas, we know this. Um and so whenever you hear people talk about abandoned wells and gases being released, I really think that, and they try to measure that in the pounds of carbon. And there's actually a 501c3 in Montana that does this, and they're called the Well Done Foundation. And kudos to them. I'm glad they're out there plugging wells. They just have a different method to their madness. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are measuring carbon, basically, essentially, in order to justify what they're doing. Um, so... Uh, whereas we actually look at the well bore and the liability. So um, the worst example that we have found in Texas is a well that's swallowing FM 1053 in Pecos County. And that well uh, was originally drilled in the 20s, completed in the Yates formation around 1,800, 2,000 feet. And uh, it was plugged back to the water zone around World War II. And so the farmer took legal control over that through what's called a P-13. And so that the P-13 form, if filled out correctly, shows the oil company did their diligence and set plugs where needed to temporarily abandon that well back up to the water zone. This is a common practice in Texas. It was much more common 100 years ago than it is today. There's some operators I know today I've spoken to about this that said, no, we will not give the surface owner the well bore. And we specifically make sure our leases state that now. But 100 years ago, especially in the Depression, everyone needed water, especially in West Texas. Yeah, it sounds like just liability. So you can imagine how many people, you know, around that time period, oil company goes, hey, this thing's not flowing on its own anymore. Or, you know, we don't have a pump jack to put on it. So we're going to set a bridge plug and put a little 1930 Halliburton Company cement on top of it. The stuff my great <laughs> uncle Joe pumped with Oral P. Yeah, you remember when we were at Halliburton? Yeah. 
Halliburton Labs the other day, and that had that had that cement truck that was on like wagon yeah. wheels. That's and what shit. they use. Yeah, Think about like, that. <laughs> this is the technology. <laughs> they're claiming they they created four wheel drive. I don't know if that's yeah, true. They, it, might, it might be true. So I tell anybody you what, knows? Halliburton, Halliburton was something else, and people don't realize <clears> we had an oil and gas industry from the 1860s to 1910. We never used any cement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, how does that work? You know? Well, oh, it's funny. Even like self, <laughs> it's crazy to think about. Like I've done right? some, like, I mean, we're talking eight years ago, you know, sometimes I would drop a, uh, drop a plug down the hole and then they would want cement on top of it. And I'd have this, uh, I'd cut a barrel in half. And so I'd have the bottom half of a barrel and I'd pour in a couple bags of cement and mix some water in it, stir it with the shovel and put some Coca-Cola in it to retard it. And then just dump it down hole with a wireline baler. And I'm like, this is not scientific at all. <laughs> like, not at all. I have no idea of what the, you know, it chemical sounds like a DIY is. on YouTube. Yeah, more yeah. Than it sounds <laughs> like something you actually right, do. This is how you got to see me. Sure. You're well right here. You're going to go to Home Depot, get a couple bags get of cement. Bag, get your bag of Portland over here. Mix it up real, real nice. Just like this. I can imagine. That would be hilarious. So, you know, you, I think we've identified why abandoned wells happen. Right. You know, why there, there's so many. How many are there? I mean, there's got to be like 20,000 or oh, something man. like that. Oh, man. There are estimates Oklahoma has over 100,000 um, that are orphaned. And so let's let's talk about the definitions real quick. You know, an orphaned well is one that has no body there to pay for it, uh, meaning it's a ward of the state, essentially. And so I, I like to talk in terms of orphaned wells and uh, and then wells that are operated. And to me, there's really no anything in between legally. It's either owned by an operator, operated by an operator no. with a lease or it's a ward of the state. Mm-hmm. And so if it's a ward of the state, the state will do what they can to go sell that state lease to somebody else. Mm-hmm. But they have state leases. And so they have wells in the bay. They have wells at the non-mile mark out there. And so, you know, operator XYZ goes out there in the 80s and drills and, um, you know, they go bankrupt in the 90s and the Railroad Commission takes their bonding money. Well, that bonding money is not tied to those wells. That bonding money actually goes into a bank account with all the other bonding money. And they use it whenever they want to on whatever well they want to whenever they decide that well is bad enough. And so you would think the Railroad Commission would be out there plugging some of the worst off wells. And but unfortunately, they don't. They're about a numbers game, really. Like it's and that's to please lawmakers and taxpayers. So they want to get volume. They, they want to get volume, as many, right? many wells like, as they well, can. The cheapest wells, not the $30 Exactly. Wells. So, and then their numbers reflect that. They go, well, we average, you know, fifteen or $20,000 a well because we had 15 companies come in here and, and bid on them and, you know, to where <laughs> they were dirt cheap. Yeah. And uh, they were all easy, basically. And so they don't have to ever touch any really nasty ones. And then the really the worst off ones are actually technically water wells because they have been neglected uh, because of the lawmakers. Yeah. And so they just don't even recognize those. So it's it's a function of not having accurate well counts and then also a function of what they choose to spend the money on and what the known problems are. Yeah. And so unfortunately, we do have wells that are in state waters that don't have mechanical integrity and pose an environmental risk to the water. And that's no good. Yeah, that's How many of those do we have? You know, I would be lying if I told you, but um, according Shit, to man, the shelf, of, according yeah. to people I know that are inspectors of the railroad commission that are friends of mine, we, they do exist. And um, I have a feeling that there's going to be um, some footage coming out here 
and, and uh, you know, in our in the not too long off future that will show what we're talking about here yeah. and that will explain in detail really what it is. And the reason why you would want to do this, somebody I, I've worked in the industry since 2006, you know, people look at me like, well, what at first, what are you doing here? I remember I got ran out of a room by a politician the first time I told him about this. And uh, he was a professional engineer, a local elected official here. And uh, he just turned around and turned tail and walked out. He wouldn't even talk to me. And so that was four years ago, you know. So I've been working on this for four years now. And now the conversation has shifted and it has changed. And it's changed because there's publicity and there's people introducing legislation. I've seen uh, different various forms of it. And so this is out there now. The topic is being talked about. Um, and Joe Biden even talked about it on his campaign trail in Delaware um, back in July. And he, he talked about plugging orphaned wells. That was the first time a, a presidential candidate or president, as far as I know, has ever mentioned the term orphaned well. Mm -hmm. um, so orphaned well is, is really the key, key in on um, term here that we're talking about here. And once you have properly plugged an orphaned well, then that's a plugged and abandoned orphaned well. And so uh, I typically reserve the term abandoned for a well that's been plugged properly. Yeah. And, uh, and that kind of keeps those in the PNA column abandoned properly. If it hasn't been abandoned properly and it has issues, um, then it gets a special star if it's leaking out after it's already been plugged. Those happen. And they happen in the industry, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, you also have quite a few orphaned wells that pose risk. You have wells orphan that are orphaned that are actively posing a risk. And then you have wells that are orphaned that really don't pose a risk because they have mechanical integrity. Yeah. But the long story short is, is that these wells have to be plugged by somebody eventually because, you know, I know mechanical integrity problems, that degradation problem, that process is, is, uh, something that occurs naturally in the environment, in nature. It's a combination of oxygen and water and air. Yeah. And every piece of iron is exposed to it. Yeah. Right? And so... Yeah, corrosion's not corrosion, friendly to steel. Corrosion <laughs> is something that happens and we have to deal with it. Yeah. And uh, so if we can get ahead of this issue together and, you know, take, take a, a good hold of it and address the problem, we can also use the data in that process to show really what operators spend. And so that's another portion of what this 501c3 is all about. We're going to collect real data from every operator in the state of Texas, hopefully. That's our goal here. And uh, we'll do it anonymously, but we will have how much an oil company has spent on plugging abandoned wells for the previous year and how deep those wells were. So we'll have real numbers here. And if we have the real numbers on the vast majority of wells that are plugged in the state of Texas that are done by private companies, we can show, number one, private companies plug most of the wells. Number two, here's what the real costs are. And so there's no surprises. And, and to show the American public really that this is a problem that is taken care of on the most part, over 90, I would say 90%, maybe it's 80%, somewhere in there. Um, most of those wells, well, well over 80% are plugged by private companies. 
And the public, um, if, if we don't go out there and tell them this information, they will go on with the assumption that, well, all orphaned wells, you know, that all wells end up orphaned one day and they all get plugged by the public, by the taxpayer money. That's not true. It's yeah. simply not true. It's a bald-faced lie. And anybody that goes around with that assumption is making the assumption that there's going to be no oil and gas activity starting like next week and that every oil company is going to go belly up. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, explain to me how that situation would ever happen. Yeah. It's not. So right. I got a, I got a question and let's talk about some of the technical components of plugging a well. So when you have an orphan well and you go to plug it, do you fill the entire column, the entire well bore with cement, or do you set certain bridges, you know, like three bridges, you run down, set a cement retainer and, you know, hundred feet of cement or whatever right. it is. How, how's the process for actually plugging a well? Great question. So, you know, if you're in Norway, the standards are much crazier. You actually have to go in and section mill out every piece of rock where there's formation and they make you put cement to cement and cement a rock and take out all the pipe because that eliminates every micro micro annuli possibility. Yeah. That's just, it's really overkill, but it's what the Norwegians do. Here in America, we have regulations that are uh, given to us by either Bessie, if you're in federal waters or by the state of Texas or by the Bureau of Land Management, if you're on federal land. Um, depending on where the well is located. But those regulations are all similar, uh, meaning that you your first primary job is to obviously plug off the formation. And uh, they usually give you a variety of options. You can squeeze the formation or you can set a cast iron bridge plug and dump bell cement on top of the bridge plug. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when, you're, when you're done squeezing it or isolating the zone with a cast iron bridge plug and usually 50 foot of cement, you can come up uh, above the zone usually within 100 feet and set at least 500 cement uh, feet of cement inside your production casing is typically what you do. If you have a liner top, you're going to set another 500 feet of cement where the liner top is. Um, and then when you come up to the surface casing further up hole, you're going to end up setting another balance plug. Uh, if you're offshore, you can do this rigless. You don't need a rig. You can do it all with wireline and, and yeah. what we call a rigless PNA spread package. And you're just using the tubing that's in the well to circulate the cement. How do regulators verify that all everything downhole has been done? You know, because I think about this one story. I right. re-entered a well <laughs> with our drilling rig and the well was 30 years old and it was supposed to have three plugs and it had one. And we hit through that first one and guess what? 20 years of gas buildup under that plug Shot up over our dairy. Yeah, that one. yeah. Train just coming through. I mean, yeah, the loudest nightmare. noise I've ever heard, man. Yeah. And fortunately, we got it shut in and, and controlled. But how do you verify that those things happen? Um, you are after you pump cement. You are supposed to wait at least twelve hours. Usually, we wait twenty four hours, and then you need to run back in and tag it mm-hmm. with wireline, and then you need to pressure test it the front, yeah. and the back. And when you pressure test it, you chart test it. Yeah. So those plugs have a chart on them and the company man who is the third party inspector hired by the wolf gas company operator to be there on location signs those charts. Yeah. And the engineering firm who employs him is insured. And so 
Yeah. You know, uh, a yeah. professional engineer is there in the works overseeing this. And so his name is on the line. Yeah. To be honest, that's what really happens. Yeah. Just like with uh, the BC like, like, you know, incident. Yeah. You it's saw like physically, somebody went to jail for that one. Physically, I know how you do it. It's like, oh, just yeah. letting your cement cure, go back down, tag, make sure that you have plenty of cement on top of the plug. There's always someone responsible. Yeah. <laughs> it's usually <laughs> it's someone a, sitting in an office. Yeah. It's a pretty mm -hmm. big trust, you know, trust. It sure is. Platform where it's like, yeah, we, we trust you did that. You, you know, put your signature on it. So, uh, you know, was, you can, I guess you can throw away your cell phone these days and that's legit. So, I mean, yeah. if it ever happens to me, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. If the government gets away with it, I will too. Yeah. So what are, you know, <laughs> as you guys look to, you know, stand up this nonprofit and tackle this issue of um, orphan wells, do you guys have a primary focus geographically speaking? Are you focused on Texas? I mean, I know that you plan on kind of having these chapters. Um, are you guys focused on Texas, Louisiana, um, off the shelf, offshore? Where do you guys see the most action? We see we can we can make the biggest impact right now in Texas. Number one, Houston, as you know, is the mecca of oil and gas. Yeah, um, we've got so much leadership here, right here within the city limits. And just within my network and, uh, you know, everyone we know here in this community, um, once they see the positive benefits to this, where we actually put people back to work, and that's the ultimate goal here is to really get a lot of people back to work plugging wells. And, uh, you know, we can do that through several different methods. And we can explain to uh, these these people uh you know, in our state, hey, this is in y'all's best interest because in the long run, it's going to save you money. Uh, and the taxpayers won't have to spend as much money on this. And the bonding money is spent to plug orphan wells. But uh, in reality, states uh, may have to start spending some of their oil and gas royalties, which, you know, Texas, you can look at quotes from Wayne Christian just recently he was quoted in the Dallas Morning newspaper, I believe, saying that uh, we raked in over a hundred billion dollars. I think it was one hundred sixteen billion to be exact, be exact, between twenty ten and twenty nineteen. So that royalty money is earmarked for all kinds of things at the state level and the federal level. Um, but that that would probably be one of the better options to help spur this along, and uh, without having to pass any taxes, you know. So there's a lot of different options that we can we can do to, to help spur this thing along, but ultimately more jobs and, and protecting our, our industry from this virus and mm -hmm. from the Russia Saudi oil war that we've had to experience in combination with that. We've just taken a beating. Yeah. If you need a, a jobs program, there it is. Right. And like you need a ton of labor to make that happen. Um, and it's also interesting on that point, you know, what are you seeing in terms of, you know, like I have a friend that's working on a project that's kind of under wraps right now, but it's a platform to streamline the process of plugging and abandoning wells. And he's, he's like, man, we gotta, we gotta enable this operation with technology and make it more efficient and cheaper. You know, are you seeing a lot of people starting to look at this issue and say, Hey, this can provide jobs. This can be, you know, kind of an injection into the economy, into the workforce. You know, are people starting to look at it and attack it, you know, both from an economical perspective and from an environmental perspective, or is it mostly on the environmental side? I've been doing this for 
over 15 years, and this is the first time in 15 years, this past six months or seven months, that people have ever given this topic any attention whatsoever. Yeah. And uh, you would have to go back to the Energy Policy Act of 2005 that was passed by the Bush administration that that gave a little bit of money to wells on federal land to address this issue. But that would be it. That was the last time, and it was very little money. So, uh, and, and that really didn't have much of an impact, to be honest. Uh, a lot of those forms of legislation have grants associated with them and all kind of different qualifiers. So, uh, you know, President Trump is a different cat. You know, he tends to do things in Trump time. Um, you know, he could possibly... Uh, be convinced to do something about this, I think, if someone was actually able to communicate this message to him um, and show him the math and show him, you know, this is all COVID-friendly work. This is American-made equipment, and this really should be bipartisan. And, uh, you know, there's there's been several people in Washington finally start talking about this. Um, But unfortunately, the data that they pull to try to back up what they're doing is oftentimes incorrect and they they're pulling numbers out of their out of the sky literally i mean you could say they're pulling them out of their ass i would <laughs> um and because at the end of the day the assumptions that they're making are incorrect and uh, i've seen numbers from from academics that are that are low and i've seen numbers that are extraordinarily high and i've seen nothing in between really and so there's a real need to define the scope, number one, because if you don't define the scope, there will be people out there that will claim the scope is just gargantuan. Yeah. And, you know, oh, we should just shut down oil and gas production tomorrow because we're all doomed. You know, we can't even pay to get rid of what we have right now is what their argument would be, which is absolutely absurd. Uh, and then there's people that will, will come with data that's completely incomplete and their argument will be for a much smaller solution which wouldn't address the problem adequately so um, I'm a practical person and I I like to have real data and so you really know what you're talking about um, you know engineering is kind of a precise thing mm-hmm. if you're chasing cement down the hole you better know how much you're going to displace that with if you don't, uh, you know, you'll end up with cement way up high your tubing or you won't end up with any cement in your tubing. You'll over displace or under displace, et cetera, right? Yeah, a lot of people so, haven't had to calculate displacement and where their dart's going to land. Right. And it you shows. Know, so there's, we're, we're, <laughs> we come from a world where everything's very precise and technical. And so when people in our industry look at this problem, we want a precise number on, on things. And we feel like there's a need to go ahead and provide some of this information to clear, kind of clear the smoke and clear the room and, uh, and get the people that have the information that is, is not right. Get them, um, either out of the room or on board with the facts, one or the other. Right. And so we, we know we can produce that. The government knows what their numbers are and we can pull our numbers together and then we can find out how many outstanding wells really are there that are orphaned out there. You can do that in a number of ways. There's technology out there. There's a company in Fort Worth that's working on identifying these wells and emissions. Um, but there's there's a lot of new technology that's just walking its way straight into this sector to try to advance 
um, this entire conversation. Canada yeah. just got $1.86 billion handed to them. Um, thanks to Trudeau, he gave it to Alberta. And so Alberta is launching a massive program up there and they do have some, some new technology that they'll be using for that program. Um, they have different standards as well. Yeah. So as, as a nonprofit, we obviously know what you guys are going to do with the money. How do you get money in? Is this a membership? Is it donations? Like what's that process like? Yeah. So there's, I don't, I don't foresee really, uh, having a membership, uh, situation. We, we rather have an organization where people are just willing to donate. Um, we're of course going to be, uh, talking with people who would like to sponsor us. Mm -hmm. Uh, there, there's a lot that we plan on doing and, uh, this is, we feel like this is a, something that you would want to be associated with because we're, we're doing the right thing here. We're cleaning the environment. We're putting people back to work. Mm -hmm. we're, we're helping taxpayers save money. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a write-off at the yeah. end of the day. So you can get tax write-offs for all kinds of things. Uh, why not get one for, for a really good cause that will actually help the state of Texas, help your fellow Texans yeah. you know, in a big, big way? Uh, a lot of these wells are on, on people's property that really don't have any money at all. And, uh, you know, they're owned by the landowners. People say, well, the landowner should go plug that. Well, you know, Ken Paxton or whoever the attorney general is, is not going to go sue, you know, some guy for his shotgun, his rifle and his four wheel drive. Yeah. Cause as you know, a country boy cannot survive <laughs> without those things. Right. I mean, come on, man. Can you picture running for office after you've gone yeah. out and sued a bunch of landowners? You know, yeah. I mean, you, there's no way you'd win a reelection. Yeah. Uh, so it's just not a popular thing to, to, to do. And so there needs to be some kind of fallback for these people. So until the government gets their act together, uh, we're going to be that fallback. Yeah. Right. And so the ranchers can come and talk to us. And so, um, I'm talking to quite a few people in the ranching community and, and hopefully, um, we'll have some of those big time Texas leaders from some of the biggest ranches that we all know <laughs> coming yeah. on board soon. Um, cool. you know, and hopefully we, we can get them to see the light here. This is all about putting people back to work right here in Texas and and making a difference for the environment making a difference for the community this is the one issue i know man if it wasn't <laughs> for me plugging wells for 15 years i wouldn't care about this right <laughs> you know but this is all i do and so when i get a phone call from the groundwater authority in pecos county saying hey man we, we've got an unbelievable situation here that that's even worse than it was before and I go out there and I stare at it and I'm like, man, this is a $30 million P&A. And I start calling public officials and they say, yeah, there's no money for this. And the EPA comes out and looks at it and they go, nah, nah, no money for this. You know, uh, I, I just can't sit there and go, oh, well, you know, it's going to swallow the highway. Oh, well, we'll just pay the new billion dollar highway later. You know? <laughs> no, man, that's $30 million. Let's go figure it out. Yeah. And let's go plug that well. So people can drive from Fort Stockton to Monahans without, going into without the having to go like an hour out of their way. You know, God forbid somebody's got like a serious health problem in Fort Stockton and has to go to Midland to the hospital. Yeah. And this highway like swallows five Halliburton frack trucks. Yeah. And it's, you know, you're screwed and you got to go drive around. You know, it's, it's not a good scenario. The yeah. local officials in Fort Stockton, believe me, they want this done. And uh, it, they they're all jumping up and down. Uh, it doesn't matter what political background you have. If you're from the area, you want this addressed and they'll tell you, look, you know, if this was in Austin, 
it would have been dealt with immediately years yeah. ago. But it's not. It's yeah. in Pecos County. Yeah. Um, the worst. Uh, the worst is. But uh, the the fact is, is this this is situation exists all over Texas and it exists in the water. And uh, you know we're we're out to fix this as fast as we can. Right. So that's, you that's guys, you know, wrapping up, you are about to get your um, designation for the non-private or for the. We are working on it. Yes, sir. And uh, we are actually launching our webpage right now. I'm a little behind the ball yeah. on, on that, but it will be coming out here in the next few days. Hopefully we'll have our webpage up, our basic webpage where you can see what it is we're about. Cool. And you can see the basics on uh, what our bylaws are, what our mission or, you know, what our mission and vision is the, and, and what we are, uh, you know, ag- agreed upon as an organization, uh, what our, our focus is here. You'll see everything we do uh, is surrounded by industry and surrounded by uh, what the industry would like to see as a solution here, uh, working with locals and working with landowners. So, um, you know, some people will look at this and they'll say, well, this is, a, you know, this is the industry getting involved. You know, they've got an angle to it. Our angle is really simple to help people and plug wells. That's it. Yeah. You know, and uh, P&A business, that's not, it's not a glamorous business. You know, nobody gets rich owning P&A companies. It's <laughs> bottom line, man. Halliburton got out of it back in the 90s. They thought they wanted to be in it for a couple of years. And they said, no, man, there's no margin there's, in this. We're out of no, here. There's so, no money in this you business. You know, people can look at me and say, oh, well, yeah, you're trying to make a bunch of money. No, man, the P&A business is not this huge money-making deal that some yeah. people might think it is. You're literally just pumping cement and setting cast iron bridge I mean, plugs. The oil and gas, pipe. oil and gas business as a whole is in a very pretty business to be in. And right. the PNA yeah. is like uh, PNA. I mean, right? look, I, look. In 2006, when I came out of college, I was like, PNA, really, man? That's like the worst job in oil and gas. It's like <laughs> literally is. You're all you're doing is spending their money. Yeah. You do nothing for them. You are a cost <laughs> yeah. at the end of the day. Period. <laughs> Line item. You you are and. So so, and, but the government sits there and holds your feet to the fire and people have to realize that, that the fact is, is that most wells do get plugged by operators, right? Yeah. And so. Well, appreciate you coming on the show, man, and educating us on that. I thought it was really interesting because I think uh, we've it's never, we had, never talked about. Yeah. We've never had a PNA yeah. discussion on the podcast, so it's good to cover this. And, um, if you're listening, make sure to keep an eye out for when the website goes live and help contribute to the cause, get the word out. Um, you can find Tom on LinkedIn, reach out to him over there. So appreciate you coming on the show, man. Yeah. Yeah. And the website's TWPEF.org. And uh, you'll be able to go there and see everything. Awesome. Appreciate you. Thank you. Enjoy the conversation. All right. All right, guys. uh, If you like the show, hey, we have a newsletter. If you're not subscribed to it, I don't know what you're doing. We send out a roundup of uh, not only our content, but just some commentary, some memes. Oil and gas news, clean tech news. All of it. Spend a lot of time on it every week. So it's blowing it up. They're a great follow. I highly suggest it. Yeah. <laughs> highly suggest it. Donald Trump is the approved. greatest newsletter ever. So <laughs> go check it out and we'll catch you guys in the next episode. Come, 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 come.